is going to be from Exodus 2. It's a continuation from uh, where I left off previously. So if you would like to turn to Exodus chapter 2, I will begin reading in verse 11 and read to the end of the chapter. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Father, we ask at this time for your spirit to reveal your words to us, to our minds and to our hearts. May we see the glories of Christ through your word. In his name I pray, amen. So, we can see in Moses, because we know the Exodus story, and we know so much of the rest of the Bible, God seeks to use those who have already tried and failed. The Bible's heroes have their flaws laid bare before us throughout the pages of Scripture. Noah drank too much, drank too much, and ended up naked. Abraham claimed his wife was his sister. His son Isaac goes and does the same thing. Jacob tricks his father into giving him his brother's birthright, and he stole it from his brother. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. The disciples ran away from Jesus during his crucifixion, except for John. Peter even denied knowing Jesus. Mark abandoned his first missionary journey. Moses murders an Egyptian. But despite these shortcomings, the triune God that we worship does whatever it takes. This God of irony that we looked at last time does whatever it takes when he is in pursuit of you 
Think about the worst thing you've ever done in your life. Think about how we tend to put God away and put ourselves first. Pursue our own interest. Think about how often our own desires rule our life. Think this morning how sometimes people in this room don't feel worthy of God's love. Well, you're not, and neither am I. We're just not. Yet he loves us anyway. And he relentlessly pursues us and wraps his loving arms around us. God works through his creatures, and there are no perfect creatures to work through, is there? Are there? So he's kind of stuck with us. There are no perfect creatures. Yet, in our weakness, God's strength, God's wisdom gets revealed as he uses us to accomplish his purpose. Moses, a highly educated man, he was raised a prince of Egypt. We know that he spoke at least two languages, probably more. He's an accomplished writer. How do we know that? Well, he wrote the first five books of the Bible. There's a lesson here for us. Perhaps... Wherever we are in life, whatever we might be busy with, perhaps God is using that as preparation for something different in our lives. If we look at the life of Moses, we will see that the process does not occur as Moses thinks it will. It certainly doesn't occur on Moses' timeline. It occurs the way God sees fit and the way God decides. Some of us here today, perhaps myself included, are marching along like we're doing all the right things, when in fact, God may be about to shake our entire world upside down and put a detour in our path. Others of us live cautiously. What's God going to do next? Oh, I hope he doesn't hurt me. We all have these thoughts and feelings sometimes. In either case, God may send a minor detour or he may send a major detour. But you can count on it. When it comes from God's hand and it's coming, we probably should pay attention. You ever been driving down a road and there's that big orange sign, detour ahead? Oh, I find that so frustrating. Barbara can testify that I'm not the most patient driver. Detours are frustrating. They take you on a different route, an unplanned route. This is not what I had decided to do. Now I have to go in a direction I didn't plan to go. And I'm probably going to be late getting wherever it is I'm going. As if the whole world revolves around me getting from A to B at a certain time. Sometimes life is like that. We plan a trip in one direction, and it takes us a whole different direction, unexpected directions. Ever experienced a detour like this in your life? I know you have. I've experienced it many times. And these detours, sometimes we don't have anything to do with it. They just show up, circumstances beyond our control. 
unforeseen events related to our health, our employment, our family situations, and other times our own selfish desires cause the need for God to send a detour. I know I've created a few detours in my life because of that. Regardless of the cause, our first reaction is probably somewhat similar to the reaction we have driving down the road, and there's the big orange sign. Oh, I didn't plan this. I've got this all worked out. I've got to be here. Now this. Now we can be hard-headed when we're driving. Like Barbara and I left here last Wednesday to go grab something to eat, going down with the Coochie Trail, almost to 200, stop, construction. Now I could have just ignored that and plowed into everybody. Probably wouldn't have been a good um, outcome. So failure to recognize these detours can be quite a deadly consequence when we're on the road. That's why there's road signs and flashing lights and people in bright green vests with signs. Pay attention. Your plan is going to change. But what about the detours God puts in our life? We don't get big orange signs. We don't get flashing lights. We don't get people in green vest. Without a second thought, we can see some of the signs. And without a second thought, we ignore them. It's not what I want to do. That's not where I'm going, God. I'm going. How can we possibly think that is okay? Probably because the consequence is not immediate. If you're driving down the road and you see a detour sign, you know you better pay attention because there are immediate consequences coming. When God is altering the course of our life, sometimes we don't think about the consequence. We ignore the signs. In the case of Moses, he thought he was helping. He saw a wrong being done to one of his people and he set out to correct it. But in the process, he kills the Egyptian. Now, scholars argue and disagree. I'm always amazed at the things they argue about and disagree about. They disagree about whether Moses knew what he did was wrong or not. Just read the scripture. The answer's right there. Moses looked this way and that way before striking the Egyptian. Well, what was he looking for? <laughs> we know what he's looking for. And what did he do next? He buried the body. So nobody would know what he did. Moses, the prince of Egypt, murdered one of Pharaoh's people over a Hebrew slave. He didn't want anybody to know what he did. He knew what he did was wrong. And the very next day, he sees two Hebrew slaves in a confrontation. Well, by now, I'm Moses the problem solver. You see how I handled that yesterday? get these fellas straight in a hurry he doesn't get the reaction he expected does he who are you who appointed you judge and ruler over us that's a pretty significant question in the book of exodus that it will get answered later 
They reject Moses, and that's a rejection Moses will face for the rest of his life. Rejected by his own people. And now he finds out it's not a secret at all what he's done. People know. But Hebrews chapter 11 says that by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, there's Christ in the Old Testament, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses' pride put him in a terrible predicament. The book of Hebrew tells us his motivation was pure. His desire to endure the same treatment as his people. Yet in his zeal, pride, anybody here know pride? Pride shows up and takes over. And Moses ends up killing a man. And now he has to flee for his life. Some of the issues that flow out of pride, including failing to take note of the detours or changes God has for us because we're too stubborn. But wait a minute, the way I've done it always works. I've always done it this way. Sometimes we fear a change of direction so much, we just simply refuse to accept it. Maybe we think it's easier to do it the way I've always done it. I know how to do it that way, right? Or maybe we just don't know what else to do. So we continue doing what we know. Sometimes we may let the circumstances dictate what we do. Our will to resist. We might say we just can't do that right now. This is not the right time. And it may not be the right time. We have to exercise discernment. But I hope you can see how pride kind of feeds each one of these. We we tend to ignore these detours because if we take it, it might prove to be right. And we, our pride might be proven to be wrong. Our faults and weaknesses may get exposed. None of us look forward to that kind of correction. I don't know if you do talk to me afterwards. We, we need to talk. Even if our way has been wildly successful for some period of time, at some point God is going to change the course in our lives. A detour sign is going to come up in front of us. And just like the sign on the highway grabs our attention, Warns of danger ahead if we don't take the detour. The detours of life can be dangerous if we ignore them. Look what happened to Moses. He had to flee for his life. In Moses' case, he primarily endangered himself. But what about in our case when we ignore these changes, these alterations in our plan? It's a very good chance it affects more than just us. There's a very good chance it affects the ones we love most, the ones who are closest to us, and quite possibly even people we don't know. 
if I'd have ran through that sign up on Withlacoochee Trail the other day, there's no telling how much damage I could have done to my wife, to myself, to the people working, to the people in the other cars, because I had to do it my way. We should be careful about it. We should think about the detours God puts in our path. Now Moses gets a big detour here, doesn't he? He has got to go. He's got to flee. He's messed up bad. So he, he doesn't just run down the block. He flees to another country. He flees to Midian. And we find him sitting by a well at the end of verse 15. Midian, somewhere beyond the Sinai Peninsula, or even possibly across the Red Sea, west of Arabia. It doesn't matter where it is. He left Egypt and went to another land. Now, if you don't realize it by now, most of you probably do, Moses is what we refer to as a type or a shadow of Christ. In many ways, he paints a picture for us of Christ. As we've already seen, when he was an infant, the Pharaoh, the king, ordered all newborn male Hebrews to be put to death. But Moses is miraculously delivered. We don't know much about the early years of Moses. Even Moses' mistake, his killing of the Egyptian, is a picture of what God will do to the Egyptians, the firstborn in particular, when he delivers Egypt. Like Christ, Moses flees, for his life even. Moses is rejected over and over by his own people, just as they rejected Christ. There are many other similarities. Some of the most significant are that both men are mediators of a covenant between mankind and God. Both are deliverers of salvation. Moses delivering the people from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. Christ delivers the nations from the bondage of sin. Moses delivers the law. Christ fulfills the law through a new and better covenant. So here we have Moses, who was living in the lap of luxury in Egypt. He was a prince of Egypt. Attendants catering to his every need. And now he's living in a wild desert. With nothing but himself for company. And a couple of shepherds he meets at a well. He's gone from being in the company of Egypt's elite to a ragtag group of shepherds. God has radically altered the course of his life. And just like God did with Moses, sometimes he needs to do that with us. Now we're going to take a little detour here this morning. At this point in the story. Here we have Moses sitting by a well. 
We need to talk about wells for just a minute. Wells are significant features in the landscape of Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. First, they're a water source for people and livestock. We know the significance of water to survival. And wells are used by many people, not just the owner or the digger of the well. They tend to become public places. In fact, they were a place of gathering. So you have shepherds there tending to their flocks. You have women there, generally daughters of men with livestock. You have weary travelers there, like Moses, and any number of other characters there. This is the place God has detoured Moses to. The daughters of Ruel, later identified as Jethro, appear out of nowhere, just bang, right there they are in Scripture. They're to water livestock, and they're harassed by some of the shepherds. Moses sees, Moses intervenes. This time, Moses sees an injustice. No talk of violence. No talk of anything like that. Moses just intervenes. And he even takes time to water the livestock of the women while they're there. The women get home early because of Moses' action. And they tell their father, an Egyptian delivered us from the hands of the shepherds. Now, daddy wants to know immediately, where's he at? Why did you not bring him home so that he could have a meal? Well, daddy's thinking something else. Because daddy has seven daughters. When a well pops up in a biblical narrative, we need to pick up what the Holy Spirit is putting down. We just do. Someone is about to get hitched. Do you remember how Isaac got his wife? Daddy sent a servant, go find the boy a wife. Where does the servant meet the woman? At a well. Jacob, who is fleeing now from his brother, who's going to kill him, stops at a well at high noon, and lo and behold, here comes Rachel. Jacob gets a wife. Now here, we have Moses at a well in a strange land. Moses gets a wife. So we have two of the patriarchs meeting their wives at wells. We have Moses, our first real type of Christ in the Old Testament, at a well. And he gets a wife. When we see something like that, it's a pretty good idea to pay close attention to that. That's a big deal in the scripture. I hope you see that. What I'm going to suggest is that when the biblical narrator came to the moment of his hero's betrothal, finding a wife, the readers of these texts, they fully understand what is going on here. They know beyond the shadow of a doubt 
Here's the pattern. The betrothal scene takes place when the future bridegroom or his surrogate, having journeyed from a foreign land or to a foreign land, and there he encounters a girl or girls at a well. Someone, either the man or the woman, provides water. Afterward, the girls rush home to tell daddy what happened. And daddy says, let him come and eat. Someone gets hitched. That's how it worked. Always with a meal. That's exactly what we see with Isaac, Jacob, Moses. And Moses is content and decides to stay in Midian. And he's going to stay about 40 years. Shortly after his marriage to Zipporah, they have a child. Moses names him Gershon, which means I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Not that Moses is in a foreign land now. Moses knew he was a Hebrew, and he knew that he didn't belong in Egypt. Moses is home now. Moses is getting a glimpse of the promised land. Oh, now it's detour time for us. I'm going to move fast. I'm going to talk, cover a lot of scripture passages. I'm going to encourage you not to try to turn to each one. Write them down, and you can look at it later um, so that I don't keep you here all morning. The Gospel of John says the first public miracle that Jesus did was turn water into wine at a wedding. And during that event, he's having a conversation with his mother. And she says, they're out of wine. They're almost out of wine. Do something. And he has the craziest response. Woman, what is that to me? My hour has not yet come. But Jesus honors his mother, and he does what she asks. And he turns water, ceremonial purification water, into the finest wine anybody's ever tasted. So good that the, the caterer, if you will, of the wedding comes to the bridegroom, not to Jesus, to the bridegroom who's responsible for providing the wine and says, man, that's so good. Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, in other words, when they're drunk, then the poor wine is served. But you have kept the good wine until now. This sets the stage for the rest of Jesus' ministry. Where does he go from there? He cleanses the temple in John's gospel. Worship. Worship is in view. Before Jesus ever showed how smart he was as a teacher, how powerful he was as an exorcist, driving out demons, how strong he was as a healer. The first miracle he did, even though he wasn't married, he acted like a Jewish bridegroom by bringing wine to a wedding. This occurs in the second chapter of John, if you don't know. Now in John 3, he has a meeting with Nicodemus, who doesn't understand. And John 3 concludes 
with the words of John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. There are only seven verses left in that chapter. And John the Baptist talks about the Father and the Son. This is really the last thing in John's Gospel we hear from John in regards to Jesus. In John 4, the very next chapter, Jesus leaves Judea. Why does he leave? The Pharisees are a little bit upset with him. Surprise, surprise. His disciples are baptizing a lot of people. So Jesus decides it might be best to go to Galilee. <coughs> and the scriptures say he has to go through Samaria. Well, look at a map. The most direct route would be to go through Samaria. But you don't have to go that way. In fact, most Jews would not go that way. Why? Samarians are Gentiles. They're half-breeds. They're unclean. Who do the Samaritans say they are? We're the true people of God. We worship on Mount Gerizim. Y'all worship over there. Y'all know enough about the Bible to know Jews and, and Samaritans did not mix. And yet, John says, Jesus has to go through Samaria. When we clearly know he does not have to. What happens in Samaria? Jesus ends up at a well, doesn't he? Remember the pattern. Bridegroom or his surrogate at a well in a foreign land. Girl comes. Water is traded, exchanged. Girl runs home to daddy. And he says, bring him over here. Let me look at him. Somebody gets hitched. We don't have time to read all of John this morning. That pattern is present in John chapter 4. Look at it. See it this week. See that Mike is just not up here making crazy things up. Look at it. You've got all week to look at it. Be amazed by Be amazed by what the story that God tells from beginning to end about Christ, about what he is doing for us, what he has done. Be amazed by that. Fall in love with Christ through his word. You know who the Samaritan woman is, right? It's you. It's me. Gentiles, unclean, unfit to worship Yahweh. That's us. 
And it's true. We are not fit. We are not clean. We are outcast. Jesus came to us in spite of all that, in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our weakness, in spite of our uncleanness. He comes to take us into his home and to make us his treasured possession, his bride. Now, man, I know it's hard to imagine yourself being a bride. I don't find it easy myself, but it doesn't matter. That is the imagery the Bible uses to describe our relationship with Christ. It's to show us just how committed he is to loving us. You men know. You know the commitment required. You know what it takes. Ladies, you know what it takes to love a man. Some, some of you might even love a man who doesn't deserve it. And the other way around. Well, guess what? We don't deserve it either. Marriage is a big deal in Scripture. All the way to the beginning of the Bible, it's such a big deal. And God said it's not good for the man to be alone. So from his side, he created a woman or the man. It's a big deal in Scripture. There is so much theological gold to be found here in John 4. I could, as you've heard Pastor Keith say, I could preach on this for months and not exhaust it all. Just this one chat, just this section, just what's going on here. But you might say to me, wait just a minute there, Mike. There's no wedding happening here. You're right. We don't see a wedding here. We have a metaphor at work here. A picture of something. Do you notice the disciples' response when they get back? They've been into town to buy food, to associate with the Samaritans, to do business with them. And they get back and they're, they're astonished. They're amazed. They don't say anything. Why are you here? What do you want? What are you doing? Why are they amazed? Because they're Jews and they know what the picture is with a man from a foreign land talking to a woman at a well, at Jacob's well, on top of that. They know what, they know what they're seeing. Why would they marvel that Jesus is talking to a woman? It's not the first time in Scripture Jesus talks to a woman. Because they know. They understand. For all we know, it's probably how the disciples who were married met their own wives. That seems to be the tradition in the Scriptures. And you will note, if you read this whole chapter, that Jesus and this woman have some conversation. There is talk of living waters, 
redemption, salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what does she do? She runs away back to home. Now she doesn't have a father at home. She runs back and tells the people what he's told her, who he is. I found the Messiah. And they go to him. And what do they do? They talk, they listen to him. And they bring him back to Sychar, to the town, where he stays for two days. Now, you would think in two days he probably had some meals with them, right? Because when the disciples got back, they couldn't get him to eat. They tried to get him to eat. He said, I have food. And he talks about redemption. He talks about redeeming souls. One more thing I want you to see, and then I'll try to wrap this up. You might still have some nagging questions. Mike, where's the wedding? We still haven't seen a wedding yet. We're going to go to the cross to see that. The cross is where we always need to go to see God's great love for us. An interesting side note here. It's not really a side note. It ties in. I don't know. It just came out when I was writing. In the Jacob betrothal scene in Genesis 29, Rachel comes to the well at the wrong time. She comes at the high day. Noon, around lunchtime, when it's hot. They came to the wells in the mornings and the evenings when it wasn't so hot. That was the norm. Read it in Genesis 29 this week. As you look at John 4 this week, you will note that Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well at about the sixth hour. In other words, at about noon. Each of the Gospels record the beginning of the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior as occurring about the sixth hour. It's no accident, my friends. That is no accident. Let me begin... And I want to read from John 19, starting in verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Mother, my hour has come. It is my hour now. It wasn't in John 2, but it is now. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. 
after this. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Remember the wedding at Cana? John 2. Jesus tells his mother, my hour has not yet come. He's telling her his hour is now. And John chose a wedding for that conversation to happen in. He is the promised bridegroom come at last. Metaphorically, when he says it is finished he's saying I do I do he's saying I do to you to me to all of the Christians of eternity on the cross as he died, he says, I do. Notice they give Jesus sour wine when he says, I thirst. Remember the wedding at Cana? What were the most grooms served the good wine first and then the poor wine? But you saved the good wine for last. Jesus drank down the sour wine. The sour wine, the wrath of his father, so that you and I don't have to. The good wine is coming. The good wine will come at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The wedding is not over, people. This is the longest wedding in the history of. Of all, the wedding is not over. We'll know when it's over when Christ returns. He's coming for you and me. It'll be complete. The, the marriage will be consummated. And our bridegroom, Christ, will pick us up and carry us to our new eternal home where everything is perfect. Where there is no sin. Where there is no pain. Where there is no suffering. Where there are no tears. In the perfect presence of God the Father, God the Son, 
God the Spirit. One quick, quick glance back at our text from Exodus 2. In the closing verses, we read that the king has died and there is a new king. The people of Israel lift their cry to God. He hears their cries and he remembers his covenant with them. Moses is about to have a major detour in his life once again. Why? Because God is faithful to his promises. And he promised Abraham hundreds of years ago he would have so many descendants and they would have a land and they would be a blessing to the nations. These people who are in captivity stomping straw into the mud to make bricks for the Pharaoh, for the seed of the serpent. God is faithful to his covenant promises. And he's going to send those people a savior. One to deliver them. We belong to the same God who never, ever forgets his promises. And he always acts to fulfill them. When the time has come. In the fullness of time. This is good news, my friends. Good news indeed. The bridegroom who loves you and I so much that he's willing, on the, willing to hang on a cross to cover our sins. All of them. Past, present, future. The God who loves you so much that he would pay any price to make you his bride. Has done just that. The work has already been done. If you have repented and believed you have in essence said I do back to your bridegroom you're his for eternity he gave you the words I do you didn't go get them he gave them to you don't doubt that don't get wrapped up in looking inside of yourself have I done it do I bear enough good fruit? Do I do enough good works? Look to what he said. Then you can look at those things and say, oh, look what Jesus did for me. Look at how I'm able to do these things. Look at how I'm able to be obedient to the one who loves me. If you're married... You understand, or we're married, you understand this obedience to one another. You get it. You get that relationship. Christ has done all the work and taken all the steps. He has placed detours in your life to lead you to where you need to be. And some of those detours were hardships. And guess what? They're not over. There's more. But he does it for you. 
Heed the signs that are there to protect us and guide us, not to harm us. They serve as markers to remind us that he is faithful to his promises. And all of his promises are yes and amen.